Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. Here we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Well, folks, welcome to 2021. I know a lot of people out there are glad to see 2020 come to an end. And today we're focusing our attention on asymmetrical risk. So, Jim, why don't you kick us off? Before we get into the twistiness of how the energy industry will likely recover in 2021, I'd like to briefly comment on a few things I learned over the holiday break. Can anyone guess the most plentiful greenhouse gas in the atmosphere? Whoop, whoop, trick question alert. In spite of all the rhetoric, we hear it's not CO2. Not CO2 by an order of magnitude. In fact, water vapor in an area like Houston is two orders of magnitude. That's a hundred times more prevalent in the atmosphere than CO2. But surely CO2 is the third most prevalent gas in the atmosphere behind nitrogen and oxygen. Mm, wrong again, and not even close. As measured by NOAA's lab in Moanalawa, Hawaii, the CO2 level at 3,400 meters was 415 ppm parts per million on January 6, 2021. But wait, wait, hold up now. NOAA has a lab in Hawaii? Corey, check to see if they're hiring. Suspect that they're going to get a few thousand applications. Anyway, 415 ppm for CO2. Next most prevalent in the atmosphere is argon at 9,300 ppm. Oxygen at 210,000 ppm. And finally, nitrogen at 780,000 ppm. And for whatever it's worth, methane is less than 2 ppm in the atmosphere. Secondly, Canada doesn't get the respect they deserve. Stat Canada reports Canada's greenhouse gas intensity, that's greenhouse gas emission per GDP, has been decreasing at a steady rate since 1996. And this one flipped the toque right off my head. Estimates from Stack Canada and Refinitive Oil Research suggest Canada's greenhouse gas emissions will be down around 10% from 2019 levels to a level in the neighborhood of 650 million metric tons per year. Here's the disrespect part. Canada's boreal forest is over 667 million acres. At 2.5 tons of carbon sequester per acre, that means this beautiful, albeit chilly, forest can sequester about 1.6 billion tons of CO2 per year. Said a different way, even if Canada doubles its greenhouse gas emissions, it will still have a negative carbon footprint. Forget about carbon neutral. Canada is massively carbon negative. And finally, cherry chocolate chip cookies are dangerously good. Yeah, we made some cherry chocolate chip cookies over the holidays, and now I know it was you sneaking in and taking them. I mean, well, my wife is kept blaming me for their disappearance, but now we now we really know. Anyway, uh, I understand you have uh, a little bit more to say about Canada. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't want to look in your wine fridge for a couple days as well. 
So nowhere in 2021 will asymmetry be on display more than Canada. For the first time in, well, ever, all seven professional hockey teams in Canada will be playing in the same division. For the team in Montreal, you have to put that little black thing floating on the ice behind the guy wearing the couch cushions. Yeah, Calgary's all right, but I'm an Oilers fan. Put the cookie down and focus. Yeah, yeah, focus. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. Refinitive Oil Research suggests Canada will get over 4.8 million barrels a day of production once again in 2021, as they did in early 2020. The volumes will not look like they did in early 2020, though. The ascent back to 420,000 a day on the east side looks a little daunting. We may never see Terra Nova production again. Forget about the Terra Nova extension program that was designed to do some retrofits and upgrades to the FPSO for another 10 years and about 80 million barrels of production. The FPSO is docked at the Bullarm Fabrication Yard in Trinity Bay, Newfoundland, ironically, where the Hibernia and Hebron platforms were built. The West White Rose expansion? Still dead. North Amethyst and White Rose will continue the slow, steady decline in 2021. Hibernia should increase volumes due to the Hibernia South extension. Also, the new wells coming online for Hebron will increase those volumes as well. Here's the inevitable quirkiness that comes from asymmetry. Hebron is a 20.5 API, 0.8 sulfur grade. Terra Nova and the other declining grades are more like a 34.2 API, 0.5% sulfur grade. All in all, not, her- not terrible, but it will leave the nearby St. John refinery wanting of light barrels. Beidou Nord is still on the table. It's funny how 400 million barrels of recoverable oil will get your attention. Equinor and BP Canada have to be chomping at the bit to develop that one. Don't expect first oil until about 2024, though. One last note. Don't forget about the newest player in Canada's Atlantic side. Scenic started drilling exploratory wells in the Flemish Pass in December. First oil not expected until 2023. All right, over to the other 90% of Canada's production. This is where Canadian production will really step up where the Atlantic side will struggle to get to even 400,000 barrels a day, the west side of Canada will easily surpass 4.4 barrels a day, 4.4 million barrels a day. Once the voluntary curbs came off December 1st, the market is already seeing increased production. Unfortunately, the same challenges that necessitated the voluntary curbs are still in place. Hardesty is still a bottleneck. But here's where the asymmetry kicks in for 2021. Line 3 will add 290,000 barrels of takeaway sometime in the spring. With the differential for WCS between Hardesty and Houston at more than $10, currently it's around $14, expect crude by rail to ramp up from 100,000 barrels a day, the market's seeing now. Don't the volumes get to 411,000 barrels a day that we saw in February of 2020. But if the current economics persist, it won't be a doubt. It'll be a certainty. 
Of all things, keep an eye on the medium sour market in the U.S. Gulf Coast. If a grade like Mars remains as strong as it is, expect the Eagle for a WCS blend to fill the demand. Finally, the grade Cold Lake is finding consistent customers while being loaded from the Westridge Terminal in Vancouver. Refinitive flows show over a million barrels went to China in October. Split about half and half, November saw 838,000 barrels go to China and the U.S., and December saw 862,000 barrels do the same. Keep in mind now, the Puget Sound Pipeline, that is a spur from the Trans Mountain Pipeline into Washington State, delivers about 240,000 barrels a day to the refineries there. Interesting. So Jim and I have a shared interest in literature and had conversations about classics such as The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is literature about art. But Jim, I understand you have something to say about art history? (laughs) As a student of art and history, I am absolutely intrigued by the notion of art imitating history or history imitating art. The prolific content producers of their day either reflect or create, or both, the environment by which activity of the day is recorded. The Renaissance, for example, moves symmetry from an abstract concept to a way of thinking and visualizing what beauty and value really is. Raphael's painting, The School of Athens, is a classic example. It's not only balanced in content, but also character of the people depicted. By the way, I believe that's my ancestor on the lower left. Yeah, the one serving sandwiches. If Epicurus wasn't partially standing behind a short column, I think you could see that he's probably wearing cowboy boots with that toga. Anyway, in the mid-1800s, Cezanne laid the groundwork for artists like Matisse and Picasso and later Pollock to take more complex views of their subject matter. So why am I bringing this up? Commentators like to simplify recoveries for ease of understanding. Something symmetrical like a V recovery is easy to understand. Unfortunately, for the left brain people, recoveries and even expansion, it's more like cubism. We see multiple different views of the same subject at the same time. Here's an example. With California under statewide lockdown, which refined product is yielding the most money for refiners? No, it's gasoline by $2 a barrel. Second place? Hey, now, did Corey help you with that one? Yeah, it's low sulfur bunker fuel, even over diesel. Two months ago, it was all about diesel, and gasoline was an accumulating byproduct. What was the asymmetrical change in the California refining market? No. Heavy crudes got relatively cheap and plentiful. The oil producer side is a study in asymmetry. Small producers spring up when prices rise and disappear when they sink. Their assets are sold off. Some of the big producers went through bankruptcy and straightened out their balance sheet and are now in a far better position to profit moving forward. Only the bigger producers were able to access the capital markets in of all the rhetoric raised huge sums of money. I don't believe the market has seen this asymmetry 
in this feature, though. This retrenching will allow established producers to continue with their cost efficiency programs, ESG programs, greenhouse gas emission reduction programs, and provide far more diversification into energy transition. Net result, they will be able to produce more and for longer. As of the recording of this podcast, oil prices shot straight up since the November elections. If incoming President Biden plans the heavy-handed executive orders and legislative orders he has talked about, he could become more profitable for the oil industry than even President Trump was, much to the chagrin of the new green dealers. Very interesting and something we'll watch for sure. Now, uh, tell us about Mexico. The term devil's advocate came from the 1500s Catholic Church. This very high-ranking member of the church was assigned to argue against the positive actions of one of the church's most iconic people. How miserable must this job have been to argue against everything that you hold dear in an effort to progress the institution that you hold dear? This is exactly the position President Obrador finds himself in. In 1996, he appeared on TV drenched in blood after rioting with police. He was leading a protest to block Pemex, drilling in his home state of Tabasco. Now, he's the chief advocate for Pemex especially in his home state of Tabasco, building the Dos Bocas refinery and expanding drilling offshore. President Obrador is very aware that Pemex generates close to one-third of the Mexican government's revenue. In the U.S., we would call him a progressive Democrat. Can you imagine how much faster we could accomplish anything in the U.S. if the progressive Democrats were actually supportive of our energy companies instead of trying to kill them off? Anyway, back to Mexico's asymmetrical return. We've all seen the numbers regarding declining Pemex oil production. Some of us have even been taken aback by the allocation of dollars from maintenance of existing refineries into the continued building of Dos Bocas. In fact, Mexican refining production is also in the decline. Both oil production and refinery output will be stagnant at best for 2011, 2021. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. 2022 and beyond means Mitzen 2 and Kweski will both be over 100,000 barrels a day of production. Yayamani and, of course, Zama will start first production. Zama could very well create a new dawn for Mexican oil production, just as the word translates from Mayan. Tryon also has potential but BHP will need to build some infrastructure as this field is about 19 miles offshore, just south of the Texas-Mexico border. But that's not the asymmetry that I'm talking about. The asymmetry that we should be watching is the growth of Mexican manufacturing and distribution beyond its current abilities. Shall we guess where these new capabilities, red finance and management, are coming from? (laughs) Of course, I'm talking about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. The geopolitical implications are immense and extend far beyond energy, or even U.S. and Mexico. Even staying within our energy realm, the implications are staggering. Mexico is short power. 
where will the electricity come from for these new factories? China's interest in Mexico, in part, is due to its ability to ship into everywhere in the Americas. That's going to require a lot of diesel. Looking at Refinitiv's benchmark file, or Corey's distillate page on Icon, one can see Mexico is massively short diesel already. From an employment perspective, what will be the implications of a greater number of Mexicans employed outside of Pemex? Think about the tectonic shift in the power structure of the Mexican government if Pemex's portion of government revenue even falls to 20% of the government revenue. That means some other industry has picked up that power and influence. There will be sound bites between the U.S. and Mexican governments, and maybe even Talos Energy and Pemex for control of the Zama field. But those of you listening are wise enough to put those aside and look for what's really driving Mexico's asymmetrical advance. So, Corey, what about South America? Well, when Jim and I, when, we first, when he first floated the idea about doing a podcast on asymmetrical risk, I immediately thought of options trading. You know, from its purest definition, think of asymmetrical risk like this. The price of the underlying is $50. You enter into a derivative spread that is unbalanced. That is to say that if the underlying drops to 40, your downside protection exits your position. But on the upside, perhaps your gains are uncapped or capped at a higher level than where your exit position was. A uh, basic example of, of this is a bull call spread. And I know that you traders out there have better examples of what I'm talking about. Now, Jim has obviously done a fantastic job here explaining how asymmetrical risk applies to North American energy. And with that, I'm going to infringe on his area a bit today. So March 1988. That was a month that Alaska North Slope production peaked at 2.044 million barrels per day. Since then, it's been a downward spiral to our 2020 average of 430,000 barrels per day. And if you justifiably think that 2020 shouldn't be our representative year, I don't disagree with you. So we'll say the average for 2019 was 450,000 barrels a day. I believe Jim has talked on our podcast before about new developments in ANS, but if he hasn't, he's done so elsewhere. Anyway, most production is sent to refineries in Washington State and California for processing. But a bit is actually exported to China and South Korea. Exports of ANS were higher last year with the pandemic, but in recent non-COVID history, exports have been something like 4% of production. Now, of course, since ANS movements are state to state, they're subject to the Jones Act. And this adds an interesting dynamic. Maybe this is a bit different now, but a couple years ago, there were only 99 ocean-going Jones Act ships. Of those 99, only 57 were tankers. And 11 were basically dedicated to transporting crude oil from Alaska to the lower 48's west coast. There's some fascinating, and you know, fascinating to me anyway, history about how Alaskan shippers have done things to avoid the act, namely by sending cargoes to Vancouver and re-exporting to the U.S. But Congress has stepped in numerous times to amend the law to effectively end the loopholes around moving product between Alaska and other states. And as an aside, if the Lime Tree Bay refinery gets back to fully operational and it makes economic sense to do so, as a territory of the U.S. and not a state, 
St. Croix would be able to bring in ANS crew without adhering to the Jones Act. Okay, so I, I love the Pacific Northwest. I mean, just north of Seattle is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But right now I need to talk about California. California is, is in net negative domestic migration, meaning there are more people leaving California for other states than there are people from other states moving there. Uh, the population, however, does continue to slowly grow with births and foreign migration. And California is our most populated state with nearly 40 million people, or about 12% of the U.S. population. That's why news of non-ICE vehicle sales or refinery closures doesn't really change much the analysis of products demand or refinery utilization in the near future. There's 2.7 million barrels per day of refining capacity in Pad 5. And of that 2.7 million, million barrels per day, uh, 1.9 million barrels per day is in California. Now, uh, for all of Pad 5, the utilization rate for the five-year period 2015 through 2019 was just under 89%. And more recently, the Pad 5 utilization rate has been consistent with the rest of the U.S. in the mid-70s. California, of course, has its own formulations of gasoline and diesel fuel. Uh, so you're saying that Pad 5, and more specifically California refineries, will continue to run relatively well over the next few years? Yeah, yeah, I am. Even during the height of the pandemic, Pad 5 utilization never fell below 62%. And I'm sure that some of you recall before that before that I've mentioned that you know 60% is kind of a magical number in refining. If you run a refinery below 60% utilization for a period, it makes it more difficult to bring it back up. I mean, and these refineries have to be fed. So you're asking, what in the world does this have to do with South America? Well, in 2019, Pad 5 CDU input was 2.5 million barrels per day. And some of that crude was non-ANS domestic, and the district imported 1.3 million barrels per day from foreign sources. A lot of this, close to 750,000 barrels per day, came from OPEC. And as could be expected, significant volumes arrived from Canada to Mexico. So not all, but the bulk of the remaining volume emanated from South America. So how does that play into our theme today? Which is the million-dollar question. So I talked about ANS, and quality-wise, it's a medium crude with an API of 31.4, sulfur content of 0.96%. So Ecuador moves a large volume of crude oil to Pad 5, like 175,000 barrels per day. But that, of course, is heavy sour, 24 API and 1.4% sulfur. You know, Jim talked about the heavy, the heavy crudes moving there earlier. Uh, but just up the street from Ecuador is our friend Colombia. And that's where I'm going to spend my time today. Crudes there, well, you know, Vasconia is produced in the plains in upper Magdalena and exported through the Covinas port, the country's Caribbean side. It's also a heavy sour. 24.3 API with 0.83% sulfur. And any exports making their way to Pad 5 must obviously go through the Panama Canal. So, of course, a lot of that which flows to the U.S. goes to the Gulf Coast instead. Caño Limón, I've talked about before, it's a 29.1 API crude and only 0.5% sulfur. And it too is exported from Colombia's Caribbean side. So as expected, what makes its way to the U.S. ends up in Pad 3. And remember earlier when I mentioned ANS going to St. Croix. Well, so more Caño Limón is on the scene will be yet another factor rendering this uneconomic. Uh, it already did so last year, but the issue here is the constant bombing of the pipeline that brings this crude to market. 
Now, of course, there are other crudes we've heard of Magdalena, Castilla, etc. But what about South Blend? Okay, so South Bend production is low, but it's on the west coast of Colombia, and on the surface looks closer to ANS than other grades. It's got an API of 24.3, sulfur of 0.83%. And of course, it doesn't have to be shipped to the Panama Canal, nor does it have to sail all the way around Cape Horn to get to the U.S. West Coast like competing crudes from Argentina and Brazil. Should Colombia ramp up South Blend production merely to capture U.S. West Coast market share? Well, not necessarily, but Colombian crude oil production and exports have been just as much a lesson in asymmetrical risk than anything else. I'm talking about here. So Colombia, as a country, looked at its economy a few years ago and made some choices. Invest and grow with the risk of failing and you know tailing off a bit more are seeing a potentially unlimited upside. And upside is what they found. In the early 20-teens, GDP growth was consistently over 4%. And even up through recently, the country has continued to grow. I mean, of course, 2020 will represent negative GDP growth. But very few economies will get away with a positive growth story last year anyway. And, you know, what's at the center of this growth? The energy sector. Oil is a significant export for Colombia, and with that, Ecopetrol has been instrumental in leading the charge. So presents another example of asymmetrical risk. Ecopetrol produced crude and sold it largely to the U.S., and there were issues, namely around quality. There have been, again, problems with pipeline bombings and other disruptions, but recently decisions were made that corresponded with Colombia's South American brethren. Don't let U.S. shell production have all the fun with world crude production growth. So the plan was to achieve production last year of 900,000 barrels per day, but of course got revised lower uh, figures when the pandemic hit. You know, Echo Patrol through the fog still invested money and created dedicated teams to digitalization and started using blockchain to track production through refining, started using AI for E&P activities, and instituted nanotechnology production, things we've talked about before. But it also worked to remedy crude quality issues. It lowered its cost of production. I mean, I think a lot of the country is below $30, something like that. And so it's, it's spent a lot of time in Asia securing deals in you know, China, but also South Korea and India. Now, China agreed to not reduce its buying of Castilla through 2020, so through all the chaos. It also achieved greater than two-thirds of its sales through long-term contracts, because why not? <laughs> What Colombia and South American crude oil producers have done for themselves is secure market share in a world where a new U.S. administration may put pressure on U.S. production, thereby allowing these nations to better supply U.S. refineries. And I say that because U.S. products demand will come back. And though Biden has been critical of fracking, historically he's been supportive of unions and manufacturing, of uh, which refiners you know, have been and could be a part Anyway, that's all for me. Jim, please close us out. Energy, by its very nature and the influence it wields, is a twisty world that doesn't often see the bright lights of public opinion. When it does, it's generally because the public is being deprived of a utility it takes for granted. In there lies the seeds of asymmetrical advances and declines. Next week, Corey and I will look at the energy 
political power structures for each region and the agencies that influence them? Political power structures? South America? Sounds like I'm going to be busy this week prepping for the next installment. Eh, it should be fun, though. Have a great week.